having done an introduction to Bible doctrines, we must start with the doctrine of Scripture because every other doctrine is built on the foundation of the Bible. And it's with fear and trepidation uh, that I approach this particular doctrine because when I went to Bible study in London, uh, Graham Harrison, uh, who many of us remember uh, with great fondness, he was uh, the one who lectured us in theology. And the very first essay we were set was on the doctrine of Scripture. And I was going to LTS, as it was called then, with a very big head, because I thought uh, I was the bee's knees. And Mr. Harrison gave me back my essay, and there was one side of A4 of feedback comments, and not one of them was positive. <laughs> so I am uh, more fearful of considering uh, this topic uh, tonight than any other of the Bible doctrines. Uh, if I can just recommend again uh, two level of books. Uh, the first is Packer's Concise Theology. This is the best introduction, the best primer uh, to Bible doctrines. He's very readable. And then if you want something to read through that's heartwarming as well as intellectually stimulating, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached on Bible doctrines in Westminster Chapel, and they've been compiled into one volume. They were three volumes, now they're one volume. Uh, not cheap, but worth its weight in gold. And this is the kind of level uh, we are aiming at. Uh, so we are going to use theological terminology. Uh, when you're looking at doctrine of Scripture, there's quite a lot of terms, I'm afraid. Uh, but uh, it's good to become familiar with them. When you're looking at any uh, new subject, you have to learn some new uh, terms. Uh, so let's look at the doctrine of Scripture. And I want to talk about three things tonight to do with the doctrine of Scripture. And the first is Revelation. Not the book of Revelation, but Revelation. What's Revelation? Well, why are we looking at the doctrine of Scripture? Why are we studying Bible doctrines at all? Why are we gathered together here tonight? Well, surely it's because we want to know God and want to worship Him. Let me quote the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why we've been saved. This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. John 17, verse 3. How can I know God? The world by wisdom knew not God. You can't know God by reason or intuition. God must reveal himself. That's what revelation is. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, revelation is the act by which God communicates to human beings the truth concerning himself, his nature, his words, his work, his will, his purpose. It's the unveiling, the drawing aside of the veil. 
I like that. The drawing aside of the curtain so that we can see something of God. Now, how can we know God? What's uh, revelation about? There are two kinds of revelation. I don't want to dwell long on the first kind. There's general revelation. I read from Psalm 19, the beginning of it, because there you have general revelation. The whole creation declares the glory of God. Uh, somebody said the creation is the theatre of God's glory. And even driving here uh, to church today, uh, you cannot help but worship uh, the God who has created such rich colours at this time of year. So the creation declares something of the majesty and uh, the otherness of God. But it's not enough. It's not enough. And as part of God's creation, there is what we call his common, I don't like the word common, because <laughs> it gives the wrong impression, his general grace. So God uh, gives us things that we can enjoy and the way he inspires people, not just Christians now, but people across the board in terms of uh, pieces of music or great works of literature or works of art. They all, uh, in one sense, tell us something about a creator. So that's general revelation. But what we're looking at when we're dealing with the doctrine of Scripture is not general, but special revelation. Now, I like this. This is God revealing himself in a more direct way. And this is what you've got in the Bible. So there's a famous quote in Calvin's Institutes. Uh, we're told that we can't see God in the theatre of creation. We're blind by nature, spiritually blind. Uh, God is other as well. We're creatures. He's creator. So he's just too great for us to fathom him. But what we have in special revelation is, this is Calvin's picture, we have the spectacles of Scripture and the light of the Holy Spirit, which removes our blindness, and we can see something of God. Direct revelation. So this book... It's unlike any other. Uh, scripture means sacred writings, and there are all sorts of other sacred writings, but there is only one holy scripture. It is a collection of 66 books, and it's unlike any other. It's about, yes, the general revelation of God, but it also details his direct, special revelation. So you've got in the Bible uh, God uh, speaking directly to people. You've got God communicating to people in dreams and in visions in the Old Testament in particular. You've got God appearing in theophanies uh, as the angel of the Lord. You've got God revealing himself in terms of types, uh, the tabernacle in the wilderness uh, and all the Mosaic law. You've got God speaking through the prophets. Now, the, those are special, direct revelation. 
And then, of course, all of those things are pointing to God coming in the flesh. So in the general revelation of God, you've got God as creator and sustainer of the universe, but no God as redeemer, as one who saves. In the special revelation, you've got all those other things about God, but also there is the God of salvation. And all the direct revelations in the Old Testament, they are pointing to this wonderful person. God coming in the person of Jesus Christ as a man. So as somebody puts it, the written word leads to the living word. God in the flesh. So that Jesus Christ was able to say, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. But not only do the scriptures contain a record of God's special, direct communication of himself, not only do they culminate in this wonderful person, Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought about this? He is so wonderful that there are four, not just one, but four records of his life on earth. Four Gospels. And then it gets even better. You have the epistles that explain to us the significance of Jesus' work of redemption. They try to plumb the depths. And even a great mind like the Apostle Paul has to confess that they are too great, the depths of the love and the knowledge of God. And then the last book of the Bible, Revelation, it's all about prophecies regarding the second coming of Jesus Christ. So not only is the Bible a record of this special revelation, the Bible is God's special revelation as well. This is what we're going to be coming to this evening. I remember once announcing the reading and I said something to this effect. We're going to hear from the word of God. I corrected myself. We're going to hear the word of God. Jesus Christ is the living word. This is the written word of God. So if you were amazed at the general revelation of God in Cardiff today, with all the autumn colours, how much more amazed should we be at this revelation, especially when it leads us to Jesus Christ? So in looking at the doctrine of Scripture, we're looking at it as God revealing himself especially to bring us to know Jesus Christ. There's a lovely phrase which I'm going to quote several times tonight. It's a prayer as we study the Bible. Lord, lead me to the truth as it is in Jesus. We, we sang a lovely chorus this morning, didn't we? About the Bible, a children's chorus. We've got a children's chorus about the Bible in Welsh. And it says this, Dyma fe bil an wiliasi. Here's the Bible of our dear Jesus. Dyma roedd de heilaw Here is the gift of God. 
Dengis hwn y ffordd i farw. This tells you how to die. <laughs> Dengis hwn y ffordd i fyw. This tells you how to live. Notice the order. Dengis hwn y golled erchyll gafwyd raw yn Edendrist. This tells us about the terrible loss that we suffered in Eden. On Dengis hwn y ffordd i'r bywyd. Drwy adnabod iasu Christ. But this tells us the way to life through knowing Jesus Christ. So revelation, that's the first thing we have looked at. And then let's move on to the second thing. Inspiration. Inspiration. Now, the question we're trying to answer here is, how is the Bible the Word of God? How did it come about? And there are a number of verses I want us to consider. So if you've got a Bible, I want you to look at these verses. But before we go into them, the word inspiration is used in all sorts of different ways. I've already talked about it in general revelation. Uh, a composer is inspired. Now, when we're using the word inspiration to describe the Bible as the word of God, it's not the same as a composer or an artist being inspired. It has a much more important meaning. So the first key verse we had it in our reading. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, verse 16. In the New King James, all scripture is given by inspiration. There it is, of God. Some modern translations will have a better phrase there. All scripture is God-breathed. So this is what we mean by inspiration when it comes to the Bible as the word of God. It is not God breathing upon these 66 books to make them sacred. Oh no. This is God breathing out his word. So the words we have here are the breath of God. So inspiration is a bit misleading. It should be expiration. Not as in expire, but <laughs> it's God breathing out, not breathing upon the word. God breathes upon us by his spirit, but God's word is God breathing out. And notice, all scripture is God breathed. This is what we call plenary inspiration. I told you there'd be some big words. Every part of Scripture is the Word of God. I've got a, le a red letter Bible here. They can be misleading, can't they? The words of Christ in red? Hang on, it's all the Word of Christ. The words of Christ when he was here on earth are in red, but the words of Christ when he ministered on earth are not more inspired than, I don't know, the genealogies in Numbers, all Scripture is God-breathed. Now, the genealogies in the Old Testament are not as important to our salvation as, say, John chapter 4, but they're just as much God's Word. So, plenary inspiration. And then there is something else. Every word in the Bible is God-breathed. We call this verbal inspiration. It's not just the thoughts that are in the Bible, but every word, do you know to what extent 
uh, Nathan is studying Hebrew. And in the Hebrew, the vowels are dots. So when Jesus Christ talks about jot and tittles, he's referring to the vowels in the Hebrew alphabet, the little dots and little marks. Uh, our Hebrew teacher, uh, who was an older gentleman, he couldn't always see them because uh, of his eyesight. Now listen, this is what Jesus Christ says. Every jot and tittle shall not pass from the law. The jots and the tittles are the word of God. Isn't that amazing? So that's the first uh, key verse. And then there's another key verse. If you turn to the letter of Peter, 2 Peter. This talks about the prophets, how prophecy came uh, to these men. So 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of private interpretation. So these men didn't write their own particular views of God or of events. No, no, not private interpretation, but they prophesied. How did it happen? For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved. And the meaning in the Greek, as they were carried along, borne along by the Holy Spirit. The divine afflatus, I like that term. And so when the prophet spoke, he said, thus saith the Lord. Often prophets didn't want to go into the prophetic ministry. Poor Jeremiah had to be dragged kicking. And yet these ordinary men, they had an audience with the Almighty. And then God set them loose upon his nation. And they had a message from God himself. The word of God. So this is what the Bible is. The men who wrote these books of the Bible, not just the prophets, but the different men in the new as well as the old, they were moved, carried along by the Holy Spirit. They're not giving us their particular opinions. But we're talking here about organic inspiration. What's that, you ask? Well, God isn't using these different writers as a typewriter. He's using them as real people. So, you've noticed the style of John is sublime. He's so eloquent. The style of Mark is direct. It's all the word of God, but the person comes through. Isn't that wonderful? So in the Old Testament, Isaiah, how beautiful and majestic the language of Isaiah is. Amos, on the other hand, he was a hardened shepherd. And a bit like Mark, he's a bit rough around the edges. But it's all the word of God. Organic inspiration. I think, as an aside, there's an important lesson here for us. Uh, we sometimes pray that us preachers would speak as thus saith the Lord. I know what you mean by that, but no preacher 
even if you're an angel preaching, will be inspired in the way that the Bible writers were inspired. Otherwise, what I'm uttering now would be the word of God. That's nonsense. But, and this is a big but, not just for preachers, but for all of us, we can pray that the Lord would move us by his spirits. And when God does that, our personalities are still there. I, I think we've got to be really careful that we don't try uh, to mould uh, people's personalities into what we want them to be. Uh, there's a brilliant quote by Dr. Donald McLeod. If you read Donald McLeod, he's very provocative, but he gets you thinking. When God uses us, he doesn't suppress our personalities. He doesn't flatten us off and make us just uh, uh, units in a, an assembly line. Uh, he uses us as we are. We are all different in our temperaments, our aptitudes, and sometimes just because we are different, we feel useless. Don't feel useless. God has made you as you are. And the Spirit uses you as you are. So I'm going to be different to Andy, and Andy's going to be different to Nathan. Praise God. Praise God. You're all to be as God has made you. Grace doesn't change our personalities. It refines our personalities. So that's organic inspiration. And then you notice... The 66 books all have different styles of writing. They were written at different times. Uh, there are different cultural contexts. And yet, it's the same author, isn't it? The one Holy Spirit using these different people. It's like an orchestra. I, I don't know if we'll ever get to hear an orchestra this year in St. David's Hall. <laughs> but have you ever sat in St. David's Hall and looked at the different people in the orchestra yes you've got the first violin who wouldn't want to play the first violin but you sometimes got somebody playing the piccolo <laughs> the little piccolo you, you need all of them and it's like that in the orchestra of the word of God and the music of God's grace and also to do with this inspiration and God using people they were not super spiritual so with a prophet it often came directly to them thus saith the Lord but you don't always have that for example Luke uh, not our um, intern Luke now but uh, Dr. Luke in the New Testament he was a historian so when he wrote his gospel in the book of Acts, he used secondary sources. He did his research. He read books. And God, the Holy Spirit, was overruling in that. The letters that the Apostle Paul is writing, uh, he, he wasn't in a trance writing uh, something that was the word of God. He was actually writing a letter to a specific church at a specific time. So we must respect that. Then there's another verse, uh, a key verse that I want to give you. I'm trying to hurry through these things. Uh, John chapter 10, verse 35. John chapter 10, verse 35. Uh, the Pharisees are critical of the Lord Jesus and they're accusing him of being in league with the devil. And do you know how Jesus responds? Three words. It is written. End of arguments, period. 
when Jesus was withstanding the temptation in the wilderness by the devil, how did Jesus answer the devil? By quoting Scripture. Scripture is the end of argument. This is what God says. But then he adds something else in John 10, 35. He says about the Scripture, it cannot be broken. Do you know what that means? Scripture cannot be deceived and it cannot deceive. Another big term. This is the infallibility of Scripture. It cannot deceive you. If you want to know the way to heaven, you can absolutely trust this roadmap. If you want to know how to live a godly life, doesn't matter what society we're in. Are we in a post-Christian culture now? Or are we even in a post-post-Christian culture? It doesn't matter in one sense. There is sufficiency in Scripture. So, infallible. But the Bible's also inerrant. What does that mean? Well, it explains itself, doesn't it? There are no errors in the Bible. So, not only the big gospel things, but the historical details, even scientific statements, there are no errors. Hang on, you say. Hang on. I've got a version of the Bible different to yours, Pastor, and some verses are different. How do you explain that? Let me say that again. The Bible is infallible, absolutely trustworthy, and inerrant without error at all. What you've got, what I've got, are translations. Now, believe it or not, God did not give the authorised version from heaven to the early church. I remember one old lady said of the authorised version, if it was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it's good enough for me. Hang on, he didn't use the authorised version. <laughs> it wasn't translated till 1611. The autographs, the original documents, are without error. So, Hebrew in the old, Greek in the new, the actual autographs that the prophets wrote, or uh, the Apostle Paul wrote, without error. Thankfully, they're nowhere to be found. I'm grateful for that, because we'd worship them instead of Christ. But in God's providence, this is the goodness of God, what we've had are manuscripts that are copies of those autographs. So the Masoretes uh, with the Old Testament, and then there are thousands and thousands of manuscripts uh, of the Greek New Testament. And in God's goodness, he overrules then that we have all these manuscripts available. And that's what Bible translators use then. And a good, accurate translation will seek uh, to be as accurate as possible and yet be as uh, clear and uh, as relevant as possible in communicating that. So Erasmus, who compiled the Greek manuscripts uh, that the translators of the authorised version used, Erasmus wasn't an evangelical believer, uh, and since Erasmus there have been many more manuscripts discovered, and so God has watched over this. So you've got a translation, my friend. 
So no translation is perfect, not even the good old authorised version. But it's enough, it's enough. Truth unchanged, unchanging to light our dark path. McLeod again. Uh, some people accuse us of bibliolatry. What's that, worshipping a book? Hang on, McLeod says. It's not bibliolatry, it's Christolatry. It is the worship of Christ. He has said this book is infallible. I am a Christian because of the Christ of the Bible, because of what he has said and has done to me. And I come to the book through him. I accept it as God's word because Christ himself accepts it. And I don't want Jesus Christ altered in any way, do you? So that's the second big area. Revelation, inspiration. And then thirdly, and finally, interpretation. Interpretation. How do we read this book? How do we interpret it? The first thing I need to say is this is our absolute authority in faith, in what we believe, and in practice, in what we do. B.B. Uh, Warfield has written the greatest work on the inspiration of the Bible. Uh, if you can read it, I would recommend it. And this is what he said. It is more than a rule of faith and practice. It is more than the rule of faith and practice. It is more than a sufficient rule of faith and practice. It is the only rule of faith and practice. Sola Scriptura, the Reformation watchword. Scripture alone is our authority. So as we navigate the Christian walk, we have to beware, on the one hand, of licentious, licentious, oh, I can't say the word. Somebody help me. Licentiousness. Thank you, Kerry. I was preaching in Welsh last Sunday evening. This is what happens. Licentiousness. Doing what we want, on the one hand. And on the other hand, uh, being uh, in bondage to rules. This is our sole authority. We can't be a conscience to another believer when it comes to our own rules. This is the only authority. That's, that's very important. But that doesn't mean that tradition is just to be jettisoned completely. We all have our tradition, right? I've preached in some more modern churches than this, and they can be more traditional than we are. Woe beside anybody that doesn't do what they do. <laughs> That's what tradition is, the way you do something, whether it's with it or whether you're a step behind. What we're saying is this. It's the everlasting principles of Scripture that alone is our authority, how we interpret those, well, there will be variations, won't there? And we can't, we just absolutely can't censor other Christians who might do things different to us unless they're in breach of a biblical principle. 
So I don't want to be controversial here, and I hope in the Bible study tomorrow night you can have a profitable discussion in this area. Uh, there, there, there is the biblical principle that we are to worship God uh, in uh, the Spirit and in truth. Uh, in Christ, uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit, uh, I believe there's a biblical principle that says our God is a consuming fire, that we must approach him with reverence and godly fear. That, that's an everlasting principle. But what you can't say from that is that a person has to use a hymn book. That, that's a matter of practice implied from the principle. C can you understand what I'm getting at? So, this alone is our authority. We're bound only to the word of God. As Luther said before the Diet of Worms, here I stand, I can do no other. My conscience is bound. But when it comes to what we imply then from the principles of Scripture to do with all sorts of practical things, we have to be maybe convinced in our own hearts as to what we do, but we can't dictate to others. We can't. So the authority of Scripture, really important, that. Let, let me, when I was younger, I used to think, wouldn't it be wonderful if, if we could just start from scratch, you know? Find a desert island somewhere where there have never been any Christians before, so there's no other church there, and just start from scratch. What would you do? But you can't do that. You can't. It's not possible. We've all got our baggage. Now, in the 19th century, there was a group of people, and this sounds brilliant, right? They wanted to jettison church traditions and any confessions of faith, any edicts of church council, and go back to the simplicity of the Bible. Doesn't that sound wonderful? That's what they wanted to do. And they produced a journal, and they called it Studies in Scripture. Doesn't that sound good? Do you know what the name of the journal is today? The Watchtower. They are the Jehovah's Witnesses. Most cults start with a Bible verse and take it too far. So let's not be naive. We've all got our traditions. We, we must be bound only to the Word. But then we must seek to let the Word of God change us so that in the time God has put us, in the cultural setting God has put us, we are seeking to put into practice the eternal principles of Scripture. And then, let's be more practical here now, and th uh, then we'll come to the communion. Um, incidentally, uh, the church, thinking of tradition, the church didn't decide which books should be in the Scriptures. By about the 4th century uh, after Christ, the church reached a consensus where they recognized that certain writings were the word of God. That's all they did. They just recognized them. So Paul wrote other letters, you know. Peter would have written other things, but they were not inspired of God. It's what we have here. Uh, there were other books in the, uh, the early church. The Shepherd of Hermas, like an early pilgrim's progress. Brilliant book, but it's not the word of God. So this is the canon, uh, the measuring line. 
The church just recognized it. Now, to be practical, as I come to a conclusion, how do we read and interpret the Bible? Well, I'm going to start with the most complicated word of all. We've got to remember the perspicuity of Scripture. Do you know what the perspicuity of Scripture means? The clearness of Scripture. Perspicuity isn't a clear word, is it? But the word perspex comes from perspicuity. So there you go. So the Bible is clear. Now, I know there are difficult parts to the Bible. Even Peter had to admit in his letter that Paul often wrote difficult things that he couldn't understand. Now, if Peter couldn't understand some of Paul's letters, who are we to think that we do? But in its essence, the Bible is clear. That's why God hasn't just given us the Bible in the Hebrew and the Greek. That's why in God's providence in the history of the church, the Latin translation, the Vulgate, had to be translated into the common language of the people. So in our country, up until Wycliffe, the Bible would only have been available in Latin and people would have said, we must be reverent. We don't want English to be the language of the Bible. Uh, you can imagine people like us talking like that, if I can put it like that. So if you would have wanted to have read the Bible, you would have had to have understood Latin. Well, nobody understood Latin apart from the academics and the clergy. So you had to have a preacher if you wanted to understand the Bible. And you wouldn't have your own copy. The pulpit Bible was chained to the pulpits. Thank God for the perspicuity of Scripture that God didn't want his Bible to be bound. He wanted it to be clear and to have it translated into the language of the people. That's why Wycliffe started translating from the Latin and later on Tyndale translated from the Greek, the New Testament, and Tyndale's desire was that a ploughboy could understand it. Not some academic in Oxford or Cambridge, but a working person. And it's interesting, many of the working people I've known as Christians, they prefer the authorised version. I don't know what you make of that, uh, but that's one thing I found. So, the Bible is clear. And then, what do we do? We come to this book... We don't come to it as any other book. It is a great piece of literature, isn't it? But we come to it as the word of God. Man by wisdom doesn't know God. So what I pray is this, Lord, lead me to the truth, as it is in Jesus. Lord, open my eyes. If I'm born again, as Calvin said, I have the witness of the Spirit. That's not the same as the baptism of the Spirit. There is this sense in my soul that this is the word of God. I may struggle with some verses, but I know this is the word of God. And it's not an intellect that I need, it's godliness to understand it. I had a lady in my first church called Mrs. Pates. Mrs. Pates. She didn't have formal education. She lived well into her 90s, even though she had a heart condition. And she understood the Bible. I always apply the Mrs. Pate test. 
to church life. What would she say? You got Suki Harley, haven't you? In more than notion, uh, the perspicuity of the Bible. It's the illumination of the Spirit that we need, my friends. There are men who have doctors in divinity uh, and theology, and they don't have a clue when it comes to the truth as it is in Jesus Christ. So I ask for the Spirit to open my eyes. I come to the Word. What do I do then? Well, I must treat it as the Word of God. So I don't just take one verse out of context. You compare Scripture with Scripture. So you allow the clearer verses to interpret the more obscure ones. Very important that. Compare Scripture with Scripture. There is the analogy of faith. What is that? Well, it is this. There is no new thing, really, revealed in the Bible. You've got this truth unchanged, unchanging, revealed more and more as you go into the New Testament. And then throughout church history, the people of God, doesn't matter what background they're from, they've always had this uh, consensus. Now, there are secondary and tertiary matters where we will not see eye to eye, but think of the great confessions of the faith, the great uh, creeds, this analogy of faith. Very important. The cults don't stick to that, you see. They think they've discovered something. I'm always suspicious. I'm always suspicious. And your mind will never be able to fully understand the Word of God, even though it's clear, because it's God we're dealing with. You must hold sometimes two seemingly contradictory truths in tension. Free will, well, that's not the best phrase. Human responsibility, 100% revealed in the Bible. And God's sovereignty, 100%. I have to hold them together. Now, they haven't fallen out, right? They're the best of friends. What did Isaac Watts say in his hymn? Where reason fails with all her powers, their faith prevails and love adores. And just some common sense. You've got to take the books in the Bible as they're written and interpret them in that way. So the Gospels are historical Many of the books are historical, but some books are not like that. Uh, the Psalms are poetic. So when you've got poetry, you don't read it in exactly the same way, do you, as a work of history. Uh, some of uh, the teachings of Jesus Christ, or many of his teachings, were parables. He takes something from everyday life, and usually you don't develop a whole systematic theology around one parable, it's there just to teach one truth. Uh, there are types, I've already mentioned, in the Old Testament. Uh, you've got to understand the different types, the uh, tabernacle, the priests, and all of that, the lamb. And then they are looking to the anti-type, which is Christ. So Christ is the key. Christ is the key, whatever the style of the writing. And then Revelation, it's apocalyptic. I can't even say that. Please help me, Kerry. Apoc apocalyptic, apocalyptic. 
So when in Revelation 1 we're told that the Son of Man has a sword coming out of his mouth, you don't take that literally. The sword is the word of God. So that's important. But then, as I come to a conclusion, the best hermeneutic, the best means of interpretation is spiritual hunger, isn't it? If you're hungry for the food of the word of God, I, I don't care what books you lack. Yes, we must read. We, we must read widely. There are some foolish Christians who say, I'm only going to read the Bible. Well, they're a bit like those who say, let's jettison tradition. No, read commentaries. Read the best commentaries uh, on the books of the Bible. Read church history. See how God blessed in the past. See the mistakes that were made in interpreting the Bible in the past. And don't just read Christian books. Read good books. God's common general grace. Tozer used to read Shakespeare on his knees. I don't know what to make of that, but... At least he was acknowledging the inspiration of God in his general grace. And yes, come to church. God has given ministers to preach the word. Uh, we mustn't take the priesthood of all believers to uh, its logical conclusion. Otherwise, we would say we don't need pastors then. No, God has given us preachers to expound the word. But don't rely on my word or interpretation. You Search for yourself. I like the Bereans. When Paul was preaching, the Bereans had their little scriptures and they searched the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was right. I made a mistake this morning. I said John Thomas instead of Robert Germain Thomas. We're not inspired like the prophets. There's a mugshot there of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones, you, you don't read Martin Lloyd-Jones as you would read the Bible? You read Martin Lloyd-Jones and you say, is what he's saying what the Scripture says? If not, sorry, Martin Lloyd-Jones, you're wrong. It's the Word of God. The Word of God. Come to it. Submit to it. Come with the spiritual hunger. Don't treat it as a textbook. God hasn't given us a theological textbook. He's given us a living word. And as we sang in the hymn, beyond the sacred page, I seek thee, Lord. When did he last speak to you in the word? Uh, that's what we want, isn't it? There's an anecdote of Christmas Evans in the film that Dan Pugh did, How Wilmer Edith is talking in Kildoran Chapel in St. Gevney about Christmas Evans, the one-eyed preacher of Wales, 19th century, and Christmas Evans was once trying to prepare a sermon, and he couldn't understand what the verse was saying, and he was in his sitting room, and he had the Bible, he had all the commentaries around, and he was picking one commentary after the other, and it didn't help. His wife came in and brought him a cup of tea. He was so immersed in his work he thought it was another commentary so he accidentally spilt the tea and then he got on his knees and he had an eureka moment he saw it beyond the sacred page we seek the lord very well then that's a rough tour of the doctrine of scripture may god bless us in discussing these things uh, let's close this part of the service. Have we got time to sing?
before we come to communion. Is, that, is it all right if we sing? Yes, God has spoken by his prophets. It's only three stanzas, and it's number 321. 321.